Live from the JLE in London, join us for 20 minutes weekly with Rabbi Dr. Akiva Tetz, hosted by myself, Mena Reisner, as we delve into the hottest topics of the 21st century. From the origins of the universe, vaccine conspiracies, genetics and Jewish law, relationships and everything in between, you are listening to Conversations with Rabbi Tetz. And we're back again with Rabbi Tetz in the final of three episodes discussing the Omer and the upcoming Chag of Shavuot, Shavuos. In the previous two, we talked about the counting of the Omer, as well as the incredible experience of the Torah being given at Mount Sinai. This week, we'll be delving into the real celebration of Shavuos, which is, of course, the actual Torah itself. So we know that the Torah is the essence of our existence and is the, so to speak, blueprint of reality. What does that mean, that the Torah is the essence of our existence? Thanks, Rabbi Mena, again for this uh, third opportunity to talk about the basis of the Jewish people, our axiom, premise, if you like. What does it mean that the Torah is the blueprint of reality? Well, the conventional understanding that many people know, indeed, that it's a blueprint, just like a blueprint is written or drawn up before the building, before the builder begins his work, so too the Torah was written before the world. And the world, so to speak, is a copy of the Torah. That's a well-known idea. It's based on a Zohar. The Zohar says, Istakal boy Raisa, Istakal boy Baras Hashem. God looked into the Torah, Ubaras and he created the world. Just like a, a, um, a builder receives plans from the architect, and exactly in accordance with the plans, he builds the building, so too God designed the world, so to speak, drew up the plans, that's called the Torah, and then activated or actualized the plans in the construction of the world. And then, therefore, there's a one-to-one correspondence between the world and Torah. I'd like to suggest to you that there's something much deeper here. First of all, first of all, the one-to-one correspondence, we mean that in particular, not just in general. For example, in Hebrew, the word for, the word for a word is davar. And it's exactly the same word as the word for a thing. That's very interesting. I don't think there's another language on earth like that. In Hebrew, the word for an object is the same as the word for a word. Why? The concept is that every word in the Torah projects itself into the object that it codes for. Right? The Torah is the blueprint, and every object in two dimensions on the blueprint becomes three-dimensional object in the world. That's how it works when you build something. The Torah is the genetic code, so to speak. It's the repository of information, describes every object in the world in terms of a word for that thing. And then the word itself is concretized, crystallized, actualized, realized in the world as that thing. And so there's a one-to-one correspondence. We see this in many ways. We see, for example, that Abraham walked the earth at a time when the Torah had not yet been given, but he figured out the Torah. He reverse-engineered the world. He looked into the creation, saw every object davar in the world, heard its word being spoken to him, and reverse-engineered and figured out the Torah. King Solomon, who lived after the Torah was given, looked into the Torah and figured out the universe. The Medrash says that he sent creatures to the bottom of the ocean to bring him things that, that he knew with the, how did he know where they were, looked in the Torah. Another Medrash says that he planted crops in Jerusalem that don't grow there. How did he get them to grow? By looking in Torah, he knew the meridia of energy that flowed from Jerusalem to every part of the world. And on those meridia, on those lines of energy, he planted the crops that grow in those distant places. And of course, they grew in Jerusalem. So we have many applications and, and expressions of the fact that the Torah is a blueprint contains all the information right down to its fine-grained detail, 
of the world, and then the world is an expression of that, and so the two map to each other. But I'd like to suggest to you that it goes much deeper than that. That's a superficial conception, and it, it, it leaves a lot out. And here's the, here's the idea I'd like, to, I'd like to transmit, put across. When something is described in terms of a blueprint, there's no guarantee that it will be built. There's no guarantee. The blueprint is simply a repository of information, a library, details about the building, and then the builder builds it. The toe is not like that. The toe is not a passive documentation of what must be built. The toe is the mechanism that builds it. I would give you a perhaps an analogy that I think is a bit better. I'll give you two. One is genetics. The genes are a repository of information that code for the body, but they do more than that. They build the body. The genes are not simply a passive repository where you can look something up. The genes are a dynamic engine. When you let the genes loose with the, with the, with the correct chemistry, they build the body. The Torah projects itself into the world and expresses itself in the world. It's not read, so to speak, passively and then it's built. The Torah is genetic, genetic energy that actually comes alive and creates, creates its image in the world. Of course, we'll need to establish that and discuss it and prove it, but that's the concept. One more image that may work. You know, Rabbi Manor, you and I know there was a time when movies were screened by light being shone through a film. Today, it's not done that way. Today, it's digital. But there was a time when the film containing images was exposed to a light. The light shone through the film, projected onto a screen. The, the film is like the Torah. The light is Hashem's ineffable, indivisible white light, shone through, refracted through, projected through the film, and projects itself on the screen. The Torah is the film, the world is the screen. And therefore, and here comes the message, and here comes the striking and amazing message, Every image on the screen is there because it's there in the, in the film. They don't happen to correspond. The, the reason the image is on the screen, it, it must be that way. It's that way because it's that way in the Torah. The Torah projects itself and expresses itself on the screen. Let me give you an example. Make this plain. Imagine someone watching a film. They're watching a movie and they see objects on the screen. They're a seeker for the truth. So they climb up in the projection room and they find the film and they say, wow, that's amazing. The exact same things that I've seen on the screen. On No, you idiot. Of course the same pictures are there. That's why they were on the screen. I'll give you another example. Here's a person studying genetics. They take a person with blue eyes. They take some cells from the person's body, analyze the genes, and find that they code from blue, for blue eyes. And they say, wow, that's amazing. The genes are the same as the eyes. No, you fool. The reason that the blue eyes are blue, the genes came first and they made the eyes blue. means like this. Anyone who finds anything in the world and studies it deeply and then finds it was said so in the Torah and is amazed, it's making a mistake. When you see the Torah says something and has some mathematical formula or some incredible statement about, about, the, about the world, take, for example, the Mishnah. The Mishnah says that you will never find a fish. The Mishnah says, written down 2,000 years ago, you will never find a fish with scales that does not have fins. And indeed, no one has ever been discovered. Now, now, how did the Mishnah know that? The answer is the Mishnah didn't know it. The Mishnah caused it. The, what's written in the Torah causes reality. You will never find something in the world that contradicts something in the Torah unless someone has painted it up on the screen of unreality and voiced an illusion on you. And that, by the way, Rav Dasli used to say, when things exist in the world that have no words in Torah, they're illusions. Someone's painted them up on the screen, but they're not being projected from the source. But when there's something in the Torah, the world must reflect that. Not because, not because the world was built in accordance to the Torah, but the Torah projects itself into the world. And therefore, people marvel. You know, the Gaon of Vilna points out where certain verses in the Torah, when, when transposed into their numer numerological values, 
give pi to many decimal places. This time we can talk about it sometime. A verse in the Torah describing circles, actually, concerning a pool, a circular pool that King Solomon built. When you read the verse, it describes the pool in, as a circle. But when you read the verse as numbers, it gives you pi to at least five or six decimal places. People say, whoa, that's amazing. The Torah knew pi. No, the Torah caused pi to be that way. It's like the story of the man who so walks... So you, you can't bring the Torah into a maths GCSE. <laughs> well, you, of course, you have to know how to decode it. That's a problem. <laughs> but when the, archer, when the man walks into the forest and he finds an archer, and he suddenly notices that every arrow that has been shot into a target on the tree is in the dead center of the target. And he walks up to this archer and he says to him, I've never seen such consummate skill. The archer says, no, it's no problem. I shoot the arrows, then I draw the, then I draw the targets. <laughs> oh, you have to know which came first. And therefore, the theme that I'm trying to put across here is when people marvel at how the Torah is able to describe the world so perfectly. Right? The Torah says there are only three animals that have certain signs of kashrut and only one that has others. And how could the Torah make a statement like that? The Torah written down 3,333 years ago. A statement is made that you'll only find three such animals. At that time, most of the earth's surface had not been explored. I hate to tell you this, Rabbi Manna, you're an Englishman, aren't you? I am. Well, this place was totally uninhabited. Who was here at the time? People running around painted blue. <laughs> no, the only highly evolved civilization at the time was in South Africa. Everybody knows that. But be that as it no may. No bias at all. <laughs> <laughs> but be that as it may, you're talking about the most of the earth's surface not yet being explored. Who in his right mind would write that in a document? and make himself subject to be disproved in a, a week later when someone explores the Amazon basin. The reason is not that the Torah is wise enough to know the world. That's wrong. The Torah gets the world right not because it reads it correctly, <laughs> but because it causes it to be that way. You don't say the genes read the body. That's a categorical mistake. The genes came first and the body obeys the rules of the rules of the gene because the gene. And therefore, there's a one-to-one -one mapping between Torah and the world. I was always amazed by Schmitter that they have to leave the field for a year, and the Torah guarantees that there won't be any starvation, and yet we survived history. So there has to have been, and how can the Torah guarantee that if, as you said, it has to be the promise first and the reality came after? Yes, I think that adds, a, if I may say so, I think that adds another dimension. That isn't only the Torah coding for reality, that's also guaranteeing it. In other words, there's a guardian who stands behind the Torah and assures you that if you keep Schmitter like this, he will step in, and, so that you, you're adding another layer of complexity, but indeed, it goes back to the same principle. Yeah. Why is Torah the focus of Jewish identity? That's a good question. The, re the deep answer to that is the Torah goes back to being an aspect of Hashem's mind. The Torah is a projection of God's thoughts. And that is what, the, and that is what Judaism is, not what Jews are, and that's what people are. So the, the formal answer and the deep answer to your question is, God projects himself, his will, his desire, and eventually his thoughts. And how does he project those? In a f format that we call the Torah. And then the Torah moves on and creates the world. So everything's created in that image. And therefore we go back always, a Jewish fixation on going back to the root, always going back to the source. So we track it back as far as we can. How far back do we go? To the Torah, which is an expression, explicit expression of his creative energy, his creative thoughts, and what he wants from the world. We have the written law, we have the oral law, Torah Shebuch Sav, Torah Shebal Peh. What is the difference between the written and the oral law? Were they both given over at Sinai? Why were some of them written? Why were some given over by word of mouth? Yes, what was given at Torah was both, in fact. The Torah was given at Sinai. Interesting debate in the Talmud at which point during the Sinai experience was it given? 
was it given at Sinai itself, documenting from creation up to that moment and over the next 38 years in the desert, given piecemeal until, until it was complete, or was it all given and written down on the last day of Moses' life? But either way, that's interesting debate in the Talmud, but either way, at the point at which Moses, Moshe Rabbeinu, left the world, he left the Torah with us intact in the form of the first five books of the written law. And over history, 19 other books were added, so we ended up with, um, we, 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 add, we ended up with 24 books of the Torah, and what we call the written Torah, added to by the prophets, none of them adding any commandments, but adding explication and details. And that's what we call the written law. But at Sinai, a formula called the Mishnah was given as well. It was given in Hebrew, like the Torah, strictly forbidden to be written down. And the reason the Mishnah was given that way was to make sure that the process would be dynamic and live inscribed on the hearts and minds of the Jewish people. Something given on a book or a parchment or engraved in stone can be put on a shelf and forgotten. The mechanism, the concept of Torah is that it's written in the consciousness of the Jewish people. So there are notes, so to speak, shorthand notes, if you like. Right? In the, one of our great commentaries puts it like that. The Torah is like shorthand notes, but the details of the lecture, so to speak, uh, the Torah is, 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 is the shorthand version which contains everything, but it's, it's such a compressed and s- such a cryptically compressed format that there's no way you can understand it without the, without the details being brought out. Much too many to write down. Much could never be written down. Every exigency throughout history is dealt with by the oral law as they come up in real time. And therefore the system is there's, a, there's if you like, an, an, an ultimate genetic code which is written down in genetic notation, which is called the Torah. And then there's a system for unlocking it, deciphering it, activating it, which is called the oral law. And that lives strictly and only in the heart and mind of the sages of the Jewish people. Later in time, it got written down in a certain way because of certain historical reasons. But even then, it was written down in that cryptic and coded fashion that ensures that it remains an oral an oral tradition. So in summary, at Sinai, the Torah was given in written form. It was given in the form of Mishnah. The Mishnah is not another body of wisdom. It is the unzipping program, if you like, that is laid on top of the Torah. When you apply the Mishnah to the Torah, it bring, these are not two separate systems. The Mishnah is the mechanism of unlocking, unzipping, decoding the Torah, bringing out its hidden meaning. And so when the Talmud, which is an expression of the Mishnah, gives you some information or some law or some detail, whatever it is, it shows you where it's located in Torah and the mechanism by which it's unlocked. What exactly is the Talmud then? I mean, we, we've, you've pretty much explained what the Mishnah and the actual Torah, where did the Talmud come in? So the history, very briefly, is that at Sinai what was given was the Mishnah, and it was very compressed in, its, in itself, but contained either every conceivable law and its application, or the principle or precedent that would be needed to unlock every human situation. The, the discussion, the full amplification of that Mishnah is called Gemara. Gemara means the, the fully expanded discussion around and around, bringing out all possible nuances and an expression derived from the Mishnah, which is derived from the Torah. That also was handed down orally. The Mishnah was handed down in word-perfect form with no arguments. Imagine, Jews without argument. <laughs> if that isn't miraculous, I don't know what is. Until the Greek era. Yosef and Yosef. Yochanan, two of the rabbis who lived during the Greek era, they were the first in history, right after the prophetic era faded, to have a discussion where something was no longer clear. In the days of Rabbi Judah the Prince, a few hundred years later, he realized that things had got to a level where if it wasn't written down, if it were not written down, then information might get lost. And so he took the unprecedented and technically forbidden step 
of writing down the Mishnah for the first time. But of course he solved that problem by writing it down in such a cryptic fashion that you still need the whole body of the, t- the Gemara, which is the Aramaic freestyle discussion, elucidating what the Mishnah is to unlock it in order to unlock the original Torah. Today what we call Talmud is a combination of the Mishnah written down in Hebrew and after each piece of Mishnah, sometimes many pages of Talmudic Aramaic free-ranging discussion, doing nothing other than logically analyzing what was in the Mishnah for the purpose of logically analyzing and deriving what was in the Torah. So it all goes back to the written Torah in its, in its unbelievably compressed, zipped form, if I could use that, that analogy, and through the Mishnah, which brings out the applications and details and inner meanings and Kabbalistic meanings of the Torah, brings it to the expression. That full free-ranging discussion which in which you see how this is done is called the Gemara. Altogether, we call that the Talmud. Well, that brings our Shavuos series to a close. Thank you, everyone, for the amazing feedback. We've had people from all over the world listening in. Next week, we'll be discussing COVID-19, the science, the evidence, the conspiracies, and much more. Once again, any comments, feedback, or suggestions for future topics can be emailed to podcasts at jle.org.uk. See you next week. Thank you very much, Rabbi Tetz. Thank you. My pleasure.